When we last left our heroes in the book of Ruth, things were going pretty well, as a matter of fact. Uh, if you remember that the book of Ruth opens pretty negatively, pretty sad, not your most Christmassy of Christmas stories with Ruth losing her husband, uh, her mother-in-law losing her husband, two women alone in a world not very friendly toward women, uh, trapped in poverty and grief and infertility. They come wandering into Bethlehem at the end of Ruth 1. They've got nothing. They've got nothing. They don't have a penny to their name. They don't have anything really except death certificates. And they come wandering into Bethlehem to, and Ruth has to leave the house early each morning to go glean wheat from a stranger's field just so they can have something to eat every night for dinner. I mean, it is the most abject poverty and suffering that you could imagine. And yet, by the time we get into Ruth 3, things just so happen to start turning around. This stranger who owns the field in which Ruth is gleaning happens to be a man named Boaz, who among other things is rather good looking of upright character and did we mention is fabulously wealthy. And so she is gleaning this She's gleaning this wheat. She's getting to know Boaz. Uh, there's a relationship starting. And at the end of Ruth chapter three, Ruth, not Boaz, Ruth gets down on one knee, if you recall, after uncovering Boaz's feet in the night, which ladies, if you'd like to try that, don't. Um, it's a little weird. Please don't. It actually, I've been thinking this week about that, that YouTube video. They're climbing in our window, snatching our people up. Uh, you know, that's what she did. She climbed in and she... Took, and, uh, and so by the time we get to Ruth 4, things are looking up, and, and Ruth 4 begins this way. Stuff's not going to be on the screen, so if you've got a Bible, grab it. Google Ruth chapter 4 if you need to. Grab that paperback one if you need, whatever. Ruth chapter 4, it says, Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Just then, the family redeemer he had mentioned came by, so Boaz called out to him, come over here and sit down, friend. I, I want to talk to you. So they sat down together and Boaz called 10 leaders from the town and asked them to sit there, sit as witnesses. Now, uh, the first half of Ruth chapter four is ultimately a law and order episode. Um, it just happens to take place at the city gate. That's where legal proceedings went down. Uh, at this time in Israel's history, you did your public business at the gate. Now, what it said was, if you missed this last week, this is important. It says that just then the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. Boaz is a kinsman or family redeemer for Ruth, which means he is somehow related to Ruth's deceased father-in-law, Elimelech. And that means he is legally allowed to marry Ruth, to give her children, and to buy back Elimelech's land for his own estate. Boaz, that is Boaz's intention, to marry Ruth under this kind of legal and economic heading. But the, the snag is that there is somebody that is closer to Ruth and to Naomi than Boaz is. Imagine that Boaz, for example, is a second cousin, and it just so happens that there is a first cousin in the picture. And so Boaz knows that he has to somehow get the first cousin out of the way so that he can step into this. And so it says that Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there, and it says, just then the family redeemer. Some translations have that as, it just so happens. And we've seen that turn of a phrase a couple times in the book of Ruth, that it just so happened. It, it, it just magically happened. Really, that is code for the author of Ruth to tell us, pay attention because God is about to do something here. 
There is no, it just so happened. All of the turns of luck and chance and fate in the book of Ruth are not turns of luck or chance or fate at all. This is when God gets really involved. And so it says, it just happened. Okay, so we're, that the, the family redeemer came by. I mean, Boaz sits at the gate, which was code for y'all, I'm here to do my business. And the 10 witnesses gather around him. And it just so happens that the guy walks by the gate that morning and, 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 and Boaz calls out to him and says, hey friend, why don't you sit down? But the Hebrew does this funny thing where it actually doesn't say friend. It's this little interesting turn of a phrase that means, hey, so-and-so, or hey, uh, what's your face? Or hey, what's his name? Or I've never done this, but I hear people do it when they feel awkward. So they do that thing where they're like, hey, bud. Hey, you there. That's kind of what Boaz is doing. And what's super interesting about the narrative is, is that the narrator is pretty insistent on naming every character except this guy, which instantly tells you really what the narrator thinks of him. And in fact, it's almost like the narrator says, well, this is a legal scene, so I had to include him, but his name isn't important, right? And, and, and who wants to be this guy? Like, who wants to be Mr. Such-and-such, such, right? It's like at the end of a movie when, like, the credits say, like, policeman number three, right? Like that guy was like, mom, I was in a movie. And she was like, no, you weren't, right? Um, that's what this guy is, Mr. So-and-so. And God is this, in this, it just so happens moment, Mr. So-and-so walks by, which gets our, like our antenna up to watch God do something. And this is what he does in verse three. It says, Boaz said to the family redeemer, well, you know, Naomi, who came back from Moab, she is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech, and I thought I should speak to you about it so that you could redeem it, if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses that I just so happen to have handy. And if you don't want it, let me know right away, because I'm next in line to redeem it right after you. And the man said, all right, well, I'll redeem it. The guy's thinking, all right, listen, the Kinsman Redeemer lot costs some money, but I'm going to get some land out of this, a little bit more for my kids and my grandkids. This is great. Boaz said, of course. Now, Boaz is a little sneaky. You sneaky mom, right? In verse 5, because he led with the land. This is what the guy wants. The guy wants the land. Now, Boaz, he's not being deceitful. Jesus says, be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. This is what he's doing, being wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Verse 5, Boaz says, of course, if you purchase, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. And verse 6 says, well, then I can't redeem it. The family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land. I cannot. So the guy's interested in the land. He's not interested in Ruth. And that, and that Hebrew word of, of of endanger is a nice way of being racist. He is not interested in marrying Ruth because she's a Moabite. That word endanger actually means pollute. He's worried about polluting his bloodline with Moabite blood, which is crazy. Now, listen, on paper, the law of Israel was clear. You weren't supposed to marry people of other nations and other gods, but Ruth is what we'd effectively call a proselyte. Ruth has converted to follow Yahweh. And in fact, in chapter three, it says that she is a woman of valor, that she is head and shoulders in character, in love for the Lord. She is head and shoulders above absolutely everybody else. This, is, this isn't just a good idea for someone to marry Ruth. I mean, she is a hot ticket in the eyes of everybody. And she's cute to boot, right? And, and, and the guy's, well, I don't want to marry her because she's a Moabite woman. 
and this is why Mr. Such-and-Such such just gets to be called Mr. Such-and-Such such or so-and-so, and we boot him out of the narrative, because then it says in verse 7, now in those days, it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. You'll notice it's as if the narrator is telling the story to people at present day about a time in the past. So he interrupts as if to say, hey, by the way, you're about to observe a strange custom that we don't practice anymore, but they did. And that custom was, verse eight, uh, verse seven and eight, they, they would transfer the right of purchase by removing a sandal and handing it to the other party. Well, you don't have paper, you don't have pens, you don't have paralegals, so you just took off your shoe and was like, there you go, and everybody watched it happen, and that was code, right? It was kind of like a special handshake. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal, and he said to Boaz, you by the land. And in verse 9, it says, Boaz says to the elders and to the crowd, you are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon, her sons. And with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon, to be my wife. And that way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. Now, when they exchange these sandals, the legal deal done. But, but catch this, Boaz is not just in it for the legal stuff. Boaz is not having the sense of, I should do this, I ought to do this, I'm a bad guy if I don't do this. Boaz is digging, digging Ruth's chili. He's smelling what she's stepping in, he's picking up what she's putting down. And here's how we know, Boaz wastes no time to make sure this goes through. Remember in chapter three, Ruth goes to him at night and uncovers the feet and proposes and all this kind of stuff. And as the sun creeps over the horizon, he gives her some grain and sends her on her way. Well, that same morning is when Boaz hustles his bustle on down to the gate and sits down to get this done. It's because he's into her. Okay, it's not just a legal marriage. He's actually liking what he sees. There's a connection there as they've gleaned wheat across the field and made eyes and across their pita bread. And, uh, and so he puts this through, declares, in, in your sight today, I've done this. This isn't the wedding. This is kind of going to get the marriage certificate part. And so then what happens in verse 11 is this. It says, the elders and all the people standing in the gate replied, we are witnesses. Fun fact, there's no Hebrew word for yes. So you just repeated the last word of the previous sentence to say, that you witnessed it. So in the, in, it's actually literally, if you look at verse 10, you are all witnesses today. So they reply, witnesses, right? Yes, we are. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home, and if you don't know what that means, kids, ask your mom, uh, like Rachel and Leah, from whom all the nation of Israel descended, may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. This is verses 11 and 12. And may Yahweh give you descendants by this young woman will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. The, these witnesses begin by just giving a blessing, and in the end, they end up making a prophecy. It's really crazy. The first line, make the Lord, may the Lord make this woman, Ruth, who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah from the whole, from whom all the nation of Israel is descended. This is, um, uh, one of the commentators is, says it's extraordinary inasmuch as they pray that Yahweh would grant this foreign woman a place among the matriarchs of Israel, along with Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah are the LeBron Jameses of Old Testament women. All right, they are the cream of the crop. These are 
well-known women. They are held in highest honor by Israel. And they just said, let's go ahead and put Ruth, who is not an Israelite, let's put Ruth, who, who is a Moabite foreign woman, on the same pedestal as them. Imagine going to, is there a basketball, I assume there's a basketball hall of fame. Do you see how much I know about this? Okay, thanks, Nick. Yes, there's a nod. <clears throat> there's LeBron and there's Kyle. And you instantly would be like, something isn't right here, right? So one of these things is not like the other. I don't know if I've ever seen Kyle have a basketball in his hands, um, which you probably haven't. And, and, and they are giving Ruth the highest honor. Not only the highest honor, but the highest possible blessing. Rachel and Leah struggled to get pregnant. And so they say, we want her to get pregnant like that, and we want her to have fame in Israel. We, we, want, we want her to have not just one or two descendants, we want her to have many descendants. They say, Boaz, we want you to have a reputation uh, of hail, of valor. It's that word that we keep seeing over and over again. Here in Ephrathah, here in Bethlehem and beyond, we want your name to go down in the history books as a really solid guy. And again, the same thing. May the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez and the son of Tamar and Judah. They want, they're saying, we're going to put Ruth and Boaz down in the history books as people to remember. We're going to put Ruth and Boaz. I took a class with a guy named uh, Daniel Block, who teaches Old Testament at Wheaton College, and he wrote this about this little passage. He says, inspired by the Spirit of God, they joined in a spontaneous and unanimous pronouncement of blessing upon Boaz. They had, this is awesome, they had come to witness, but they left prophesying. Had they been around long enough to see the fulfillment of their prayer, they would have observed the establishment of a name and a house far greater than Perez, the house of King David, a name commemorated to this day and the flag of the state of Israel. We'll get back to David in a minute. But first look at chapter four, verse 13. It says, so Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. And when he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant. The Lord literally, it says, opened her womb and she gave birth to a son. See, it's starting, it's starting to get wrapped up. It's, this is when the Hallmark movie ends, right? And the fake snow is flying especially beautifully. And, and you know, the, recent, the recently, you know, fired, powerful executive who went home to stay with his parents, falls in love with the girl next door who loves Christmas even though he hates it kind of thing. Um, and there's a movie, right? I just did it. Um, uh, this is that moment when all the music is playing. And so Ruth has a son. And then it says in verse 14, then the women of the town said to Naomi, now remember Naomi insisted in chapter one on being called Mara, which means bitter. But they don't call her Mara right now. They call her by a real name, which means beautiful and sweet and delightful. They said to Naomi, praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. I love that little turn of a phrase where it's like, yeah, Ruth is worth seven men. In a world where women are forgotten and considered nothing, they're like, Ruth is worth seven sons. She, and then it says, uh, it keeps going. Uh, may he restore your youth and care for you. He loves you. Have a Seven sons, verse 16, Naomi took the baby. This is so sweet. Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast, kind of like Dan is doing in the back right now. And she cared for him as if he were her own. And the neighbor women said, now at last, Naomi has a son again, and they named him Obed. 
and he became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of King David. And this is the genealogical record of their ancestor, Perez. And it goes on with this list and it says, Salmon was the father of Boaz, Boaz was the father of Obed, Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. And here you watch kind of the story come to a close in this really sweet tie a bow on it way for each of them. Ruth has a son, Naomi has a son-in-law and a grandson and will be cared for. Boaz's name goes down in history for marrying this Moabite woman. Uh, They are all, by the way, fabulously wealthy, all is well. And it seems strange to us that this book would end on um, a genealogical record. Right, because this is the part that we try to fly through in scripture, but for the people of Israel, this is more than just, um, this is more than just a reporting of facts. It is kind of like that beginning of Star Wars, which I saw yesterday, which I would rate a solid A, don't listen to the haters. Um, no spoilers. Um, uh, it's like that part when it goes like, and then the letters are going up, right? And it just gets you hyped. That is what genealogies are. Right? This is genealogy has kind of summarized the story, believe it or not, in this weird way. And really, this is when we see, let, we're going to go to school for a minute, then we're going to get practical. So this is where we see the ultimate theological reason behind the book of Ruth was to demonstrate to the people how the Lord preserved the line of David through the chaos of the judges. The judges is one, the time of judges is one of the most chaotic Uh, insane, disruptive times in Israel's history. Uh, Things are falling apart left and right, and yet in the cesspit of, of the judges, on the top is this lotus flower, this lily floating that is the book of Ruth that tells how even in the midst of the overwhelming chaos and destruction of the time of the judges, God in his hesed, in his faithful love, in his persevering, pursuing, fireproof, bulletproof love, how this God brought about his purposes even in the midst of chaos. About how God hovers above all of this and manages to take really terrible circumstances to bring about his purposes. The book of Ruth is telling a story a few, a few generations before David to, a, to people a few generations after. David is perhaps one of the most, he's like in the top four of scripture people, right? There's Jesus, there's Moses, there's Elijah, and then there's David. David, the king of right, a king of righteousness, takes the chaos of the judges and unites the tribes into one monarchy that worships the Lord. He is a man after God's own heart. As a king, he is the measure of every king after him. In fact, the book of King, one and two kings, the book of one and two chronicles, the, these books measure every king against David. And in fact, David sets the tone for everything they expected Jesus to be. David sets a tone for everything they thought Jesus would become, which is actually why you see a lot of like David and Bethlehem imagery uh, within within our Christmas carols. And so here is David, this fabulous king, and we're telling a story about David's line a few generations after David, because since David has become king, his son Solomon has split the kingdom. We've had a series of bad kings, and we are in a period of chaos exactly like we had when we were in the judges. 
We had a period of chaos, exactly like we were in the Judges. And so the story of Ruth is about, look, this is how God preserved the line of David, our king, through the chaos of the Judges. And now, a few generations after him, it feels like all hope is lost. It feels like king that would come after David that we were promised, a king like David, only better. It feels like we're never going to see him again. So here is the book of Ruth that tells the story of how God worked even in the midst of chaos to bring David to be and how now we can trust in the midst of our chaos that God is one day going to provide a Messiah. It just meant that they had to live a couple thousand years longer. And bonus, how for you and I, God takes chaos of our lives, how God takes the absolute mess of every single one of our moments and is somehow bringing about the righteous, good, and even beautiful end to our stories. Because when we read the book of Ruth, when we read the book of Ruth, it honestly feels a little too good to be true. When we read the book of Ruth, it honestly feels a little too good to be true. It feels, it feels like a Hallmark movie that we've seen before, but that feels pretty unattainable to us. It feels like a story that we're, we can be very easily cynical about. Ruth began in such abject poverty and need and sorrow and a matter of a few lines, everything's better, and now we've wrapped this beautiful little Christmas bow on this book, and, and now that there's Ruth's happily ever after, and meanwhile, the rest of us are kind of still waiting for hours. The rest of us are still waiting for these little moments that Ruth gets to have at the end of her story. But in Ruth, we see the God of Hesed, this faithful love, take all of these loose ends, all of these pieces, and wrap them up in, this, in, in his power and his might. And we still ask, what about our loose ends? See, God takes the loose ends of Ruth's story, and, she wraps, and he, they get them all wrapped up, and she gets a baby, and everything's fine. But what about us? What about our fractured relationships? What about our disappointments? What about the illness and the divorce papers and the miscarriages and the cancer and, and the financial breakdown? Like, what about it for us? Because it feels like there's Ruth's story that is happily ever after, but I'm just going to be over here kind of stuck in the middle of mine. But at the end of our stories, like in Ruth, at the end of our stories, God in his hesed, this faithful love, he comes and promises to take all of our loose ends and to tie them back together into something reasonable and measurable and beautiful and recognizable. This is the promise of scripture at the end of, at the end of the New Testament. There is this promise that at the end of days, God himself will wipe every tear from our eyes, that there will be no more crying or sorrow or pain, that even the bad things that have happened to us will no longer come to mind, that they will be forgotten. But that is the end of our story. So what if when we get to heaven, our stories look like Ruth's? What if it's when we get to heaven that all of the loose ends are tied up? What if it's when we get to the end of the story that we get to see it beautiful and recognizable and that we can look back like Ruth has to look back on her story and say, even though it was terrible, somehow God brought it together to have it all make sense. In, in essence, the book of Ruth wants to tell us this, that everything will be all right in the end. But if it's not all right, then it's not the end. Everything will be all right in the end. So if it's not all right, then it must not be the end. 
I'm stealing that, by the way, from the best exotic Marigold Hotel, but it's true. That everything is what the, the Book of Ruth is saying, everything will be all right in the end, and if it's not the end, if it's not all right, then it must not be the end. Which then leads us to this. We can't use somebody else's ending to judge our middle. We can't use the ending of somebody else's story to judge our middle. We can't use the somebody else's ending to judge our middle. Because when we do that, we find ourselves disappointed, we find ourselves angry that, he, that God has kind of done for them what he hasn't done for us. When, when, when we, judge, we, we judge our middle by somebody else's end, we even begin to worry, we even begin to worry that what if God gave them the last blessing and for me, he's gonna have to reach into the back of the fridge to find whatever he has left. Which is probably gonna be old and moldy and gross anyway. Annie Downs, um, she has a really great book called Looking for Lovely that we listened to on our way down to South Carolina this fall. And she talks about how when we, and I'm kind of barring this, when we judge our middle by somebody else's end, we believe that we're playing shoots and ladders, right? I've never played this game, and even, but just hearing about it makes me frustrated, right? You flick the dial, it's all random, and your buddy gets to go up the ladder 10 things, but you go down like five shoots, right? And that's kind of what it feels like when we judge our middle by somebody else's end. It feels like, look, they get to keep climbing the ladders and it keeps getting better for them, but I keep going down the chute and down the chute and down the chute and down the chute. Annie says, we have to change our frame of reference from, we're not playing chutes and ladders, we're playing solitaire, each of us. We're all playing solitaire. And the only gift that we can give one another is the gift of our presence, the gift of our companionship, and occasionally looking over our friend's shoulder and saying, hey, by the way, did you know that you could put that jack on that queen? It's their game. We're not competing over the same resources. Somebody's not doing better than me or worse than me. At the end of the day, each of us are playing solitaire, which frees us from judging our middle by somebody else's end because this is my game to play. I'm gonna keep my eyes on my paper. And occasionally I give the gift of my presence to somebody else and say, that Jack can go on that queen. Occasionally you give the gift of your presence to me and say, that ace can go on that too. Occasionally, and maybe even more often than we already do, we need to be giving one another the gift of our presence, the gift of our companionship, the gift of our friendship, just like Ruth gave to Naomi on that road from Moab to Bethlehem. That's all that Naomi ended up with. A really, really crappy game of solitaire and somebody to help play it by looking over her shoulder. We can't judge our middle by somebody else's ending. Instead, instead, we look forward with hope to the moment that our ending, that when our ending does come, everything will be all right. We look forward to the moment that when our ending comes, everything will be all right. And if it's not all right yet, it's because the ending hasn't come. And the truth of the matter is that when the ending does come, when the story is finished being written, it still will be better than our wildest dreams. It will be better than our wildest dreams. If you have, a, if you have it, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. So it took even a little longer for Ruth and Boaz's story to end. Matthew 1.1 1, 1 says, this is the record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David. Okay, in the background, here in your head, 
Okay, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, Judah, Judah, Paris, Tazerah, blah, blah, blah. Okay, jump down to verse 5. Samuel was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. David was the father of Solomon. But skip down to verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Ruth, this foreign Moabite woman, and her, her new husband's mother, Rahab, are Gentiles who are included in the line of Jesus. Women who are forgotten and overlooked and treated harshly and without care, they're in the line of the Savior. Ruth is a woman in desperate need and who in the very middle of her story, all was lost. In the very middle of her story, everything was falling apart. What she didn't know is that even further beyond the end of her story was something beyond her wildest dreams, that God was even using and orchestrating the crap of that moment to bring about something beautiful. Rahab is a Gentile prostitute who hides some Jewish spies in her house when Jericho spies come, Jericho soldiers come looking for them. She is included in the line of Jesus. These women who in the middle of their stories, everything was falling apart, found that God was in his hesed, this, this sacred loyal love was recruiting them to be a part of their story so that generations later, everything would truly and actually be all right. Everything would truly and actually be all right. God does not look on you and I and say, ooh, that's a hot mess, no thank you. Instead, God looks at us messed up and fractured broken people and sees nothing but raw potential. And so maybe the middle of our story is the worst right now. You'd like the chapter to go. There is no fast forward button. There are no spoiler alerts. Maybe your story isn't that bad. Maybe it's just mind-numbingly mediocre. In either case, we need to be remembering that this God of Hesed is working behind the scenes, purposefully, if secretly, to make the end all right. And if it's not all right, then it's just not the end. The middle of your story is ground zero for God's preparatory work, the place where God is forming you and positioning you to be used in powerful ways because here's Ruth and Rahab in the middle of their stories being positioned to be in the line of Jesus. The middle of your story is ground zero for God's preparatory work for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Father, um, we bring you our stories, and even though we are in the middle of them, God, we pray that you would be um, good to us and known to us, that you would be powerful in us, that, Jesus, you would reveal yourself to be our own, that you would reveal yourself to be for us. God, in the middle of our stories, we pray that we would see a hand of your grace working. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.